0: Well, good morning, morning. it's good to be back with you again, and uh, I was hearing there that you're interested in theology and the brain, so what better way to start our service than engaging our brains, and more importantly, our spirits, and all that is within us, and hear these words, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and today, and forever, so let's meet him afresh in our worship today, let's pray together. We come before you, Lord, in various frames of mind. Some are joyful, awake to all the possibilities of this new day, and others are sluggish, dragging their feet out of a sense of duty. Some think ahead to the cares of tomorrow, while others still bear the burdens of yesterday. But you, Lord Jesus, are always the same, yesterday, today, and forever, We can depend on your welcoming love in the midst of our changing moods. You are our anchor. Amen.
1: Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 112. Happy is the person who honours the Lord, who takes pleasure in obeying his commands. The good man's children will be powerful in the land, his descendants will be blessed His family will be wealthy and rich and he will be prosperous forever. Light shines in the darkness for good people, for those who are merciful, kind and just. Happy is a person who is generous with his loans, who runs his business honestly. A good person will never fail. He will always be remembered. He's not afraid of receiving bad news. His faith is strong and he trusts in the Lord. He is not worried or afraid. He is certain to see his enemies defeated. He gives generously to the needy, and his kindness never fails. He will be powerful and respected. The wicked see this and are angry. They glare and hate and disappear. Their hopes are gone forever. And then we have a reading of some verses in Hebrews chapter 13. Keep on loving one another as Christian brothers and sisters. Remember to welcome strangers in your homes. There were some who did that and welcomed angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Remember those who are suffering as though you are suffering as they are. Marriage is to be honoured by all, and husbands and wives must be faithful to each other. God will judge those who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be satisfied with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you, I will never abandon you. Let us be bold then and say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, What can anyone do to me? Remember your former leaders who spoke God's message to you. Think back on how they lived and died and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Let us then always offer praise to God as sacrifice through Jesus, which is the offering presented by lips that confess him as Lord. Do not forget to do good and to help one another because these are the sacrifices that please God.
0: It's good to be with you. And we're going to be looking at this passage from Hebrews. Now, Hebrews, as you probably know, is a bit of a mystery book. And it was the year 397 before it was finally accepted into the canon of Scripture. And no one really agrees on who wrote it. And the consensus, based on analyzing the vocabulary and the grammar and the style, seems to be that it wasn't Paul. Some people say Barnabas wrote it, and some make a case for Priscilla or Apollos. But the important thing, of course, is not the author's name. The important thing is, what is God saying through it? And the Hebrews were probably a small house church, much smaller than this church. Uh, They might have been based in Rome. And opposition to the followers of Jesus was beginning to hot up, although persecution hadn't quite reached fever pitch at that time. And this epistle to the Hebrews is essentially a sermon that's delivered by a caring pastor who wants his little flock to be able to stand firm and secure in spite of the suffering that is surely coming their way. Now, I've just completed my studies at the Baptist College Uh, And I've just completed a 15,000-word dissertation on Hebrews. Now, I would love to say that this makes me some kind of expert, um, but that would be a bit like comparing a stroll to the post office with the ascent of Everest. So what I know about Hebrews is a walk to the post office. There's the rest of it to come. Um, But my project, for what it's worth, was exploring the links between Christology and community, Or in put more simply, um, what does Hebrews teach about Jesus? That's the Christology. And how does that teaching about Jesus strengthen this little band of believers? How does it nurture them in the present? And how does it stabilize them uh, for the future? And the vision of Jesus in Hebrews is very distinctive. It captures his full humanity and his full divinity... And also, it reveals Jesus uniquely as the great high priest who has made a once-for-all sacrifice to give believers direct access to God and a new confidence in God. And the ministry of Jesus, according to Hebrews, is more excellent than that of Moses. Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. So Hebrews spoke to a very fragile community that were being tempted to give up on the Jesus way, and perhaps revert to the familiarity and the relative security of their Jewish faith that they'd grown up in. And it's my belief that Hebrews has the power to speak to us as well. And if we allow Hebrews to renew our vision of Jesus, uh, our community will be deepened, and our worship revitalized, and we'll find the strength that we need for mission and ministry within a cynical and frequently antagonistic Culture. Now, I'll admit to you, this last chapter of Hebrews can seem a bit prosaic after all the lofty passages that go before it. It's maybe, if I was picking a, a chapter from Hebrews, I maybe wouldn't pick this one. Um, But scripture doesn't exist just to delight our imaginations or feed us abstract theological concepts, does it? There comes a time when we need to grapple with how this word relates to our everyday lives. And it was customary for Greek orators to end their speeches with a thing called a peroration. Uh, In that, what they would do is this would be their final attempt to move the audience into the desired direction. This is the sort of pinnacle of their persuasiveness. Um, And I think that's what's going on here. And the theme that was suggested to me for this morning was the wings of faith. But I think actually maybe the legs of faith um, is a bit more accurate, or even the wheels of faith, because I think this chapter is where the rubber hits the road of our discipleship. So first, and most importantly from this passage, It tells us that we're called to offer a sacrifice of praise. If we look at verse 15, I've got a slightly different translation, but the message is the same, really. Um, Through him, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And the Hebrews author, in various chapters before it, has taken a lot of trouble to explain that animal sacrifices are no longer required as part of worship. Jesus' death on the cross has rendered those obsolete. So the sacrifice that God looks for now is the sacrifice of praise. And at one level, this is about the fruit of lips that confess his name. So that confessing of Christ with the mouth in spoken or sung worship and witness realigns the mind and the emotions and the will with Christ's purpose and priorities. Those of us who benefit from the saving work of Jesus do have a responsibility to declare him publicly. But remember, for the early Christians, that was no small thing to declare Jesus as Lord. Saying Jesus was Lord was pretty much saying your loyalty to the Roman emperor, the all-powerful Roman emperor, was in question. It put you in danger of punishment. So heartfelt devotion to Jesus is set against a backdrop of risk. And that is true today for many in the world, and even for ourselves sometimes. And these words that are translated sacrifice of praise also come up in the book of Leviticus in chapter 7 and they refer to a thank offering, or uh, in my translation here, a thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being. Now, this was the highest form of peace offering under the old covenant. It was an offering that you made voluntarily. You didn't have to do it, but it was the worshipper's response of gratitude for sins forgiven and righteousness restored. Now, at that time, the sacrifice that you would bring that um, Thanksgiving sacrifice was cakes of unleavened bread. But now that Jesus has made that once-for-all offering, we're really in perpetual gratitude because we've been invited to draw near to the throne of grace. So our sacrifice isn't um, a literal one. It's not something physical that we bring. It's uh, the sacrifice of our lives and our praise. And according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of humans is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Worship is our primary calling. And it begins as we turn our hearts and minds towards Christ, feeding on his truth and allowing him to renew us. And we allow God's Holy Spirit to minister to us with counsel and comfort, with healing and empowering And we express our praise and thanksgiving in prayer and testimony and song and proclamation and all kinds of creative acts. And ultimately, worship is what should characterize our whole life as we seek to bring glory and honor to our God. Our second calling that I see in this passage is to a life of mutual love and connection. And it is a bit kind of a bitty chapter. It's full of... Seemingly unrelated little pithy instructions. But there is a unity of theme, I think. Um, Let mutual love continue, is what it's saying. The commands and the principles that follow seem to hold this issue of connectedness in common. And they speak about where we stand and how we should act in relation to strangers, prisoners, spouses, possessions, and leaders. And we're going to come to those details in a while, but I just want to notice that common thread at this point. Now, this Greek word that's translated mutual love or brotherly love is one that you might be familiar with. It's the word Philadelphia. Now, it probably shows you how unspiritual I am, um, but when I hear the word Philadelphia, I think of cheese. Um, My mind jumps straight to the soft cheese. But that's not such a bad comparison, I think, because it's something very comforting and sustaining. And what's the best thing to do with Philadelphia? Spread it on thick. I think that's what it's saying. Spread it on thick, this mutual love. Um, But this concept, seriously, of brotherly love is really important in Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we learn there that Jesus is not ashamed, he does not blush, to call believers his brothers and sisters. And what is it that's unique about that sibling relationship? Well, it's the connection to a common parent or parents, isn't it? And as Christians, we are children of the same heavenly father. We're sisters and brothers to each other and to Jesus. Now, my dad, my biological dad, has been very ill this year. He had a stroke, and I'm an only child. My dad lives in Spain, which kind of complicates life. And it's probably the first time in my life that I've, I've thought, actually, do you know, it might be good to have a brother or sister. Never needed one before. Been quite happy being an only. Um, but suddenly I think, well, if there was somebody else who had that same relationship to my dad uh, and could share some kind of concerns and uh, responsibilities on an equal basis, that might be good. Now, of course, we aren't always close to our siblings by birth or or by marriage. But our calling as Christians is to love one another with close ties of affection, knowing that we're children of the same father and recognizing that we have a shared inheritance in Christ. And notice that it says this love isn't a one-time thing. It's love that needs to continue. It can't just be an abstract concept or a pious feeling It needs to be expressed in ongoing mutual respect, genuine friendship, and practical concern. And we need to be very quick to forgive and slow to take offense, always ready to celebrate other people's gifts and achievements, not getting jealous of them, Um, and to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. All of that, I think, is part of that mutual love. We're a covenant community, bound by that adoption into God's family. And most of the rest of this passage is about how we can express that love or violate that love. So we're called to offer a sacrifice of praise, first of all, called to a life of mutual love and connection, and then I think we're called to pay attention to detail. Now, I'm a, you know, I, I used to be a librarian. I'm very much a details person Um, But this passage is good because it said details actually are important. And this list of instructions is not trivial. It's not random. These are issues that are the building blocks of our lives and our life together. These are the links in the chain of our discipleship. And really, each of these verses could do with its own topical sermon. You could make a, a series on this chapter that would last quite a while, because they're all really important and challenging issues. But this morning, you're going to get the whistle-stop tour of each one. So verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And we were thinking earlier about being welcoming and being inclusive. And when we think of hospitality, we often think, don't we, of taking people into our homes for a meal or another social occasion... And some Christians have a real ministry of hospitality. They do that very naturally. Others of us might admit that maybe we struggle to find the time or the energy for that. And it's very easy to let hospitality become restricted to the people that we see as our close friends. And in any organization, any group, cliques can be a real risk, that we would just be hospitable to the people that we really, really like. Um, In the ancient world, it was really important uh, to give hospitality because pastors were moving around and evangelists and business people and also a lot of refugees that were fleeing persecution. And the inns, the only other option for hospitality really was to stay at an inn and they were a bit notoriously unclean, expensive, maybe a bit questionably immoral. Um, So it was important to take people in for an evening or overnight. Uh, That was a part of a normal faith then. Um, But it did require people, and it still requires people, to make themselves a wee bit vulnerable. You don't know this person who's coming in. You don't quite know how they're going to behave, what it's going to be like. You have to take a risk on the stranger in your midst. And I was thinking, first-time invitations really matter. Martin and I, we've moved about a bit. We seem to be drifting northwards, which kind of worries me because it's getting colder and colder the further north we go. Not this summer, of course. Um, But when we moved from Oxford, where we had been for 10 years, to Birmingham... Um, We had quite a bumpy transition into the church there. Now, eventually, everything was lovely, and it's a great church. I'm not criticizing it. But on that, our first time there, Um, the minister spoke to us, but actually, do you know, it was a whole month before anybody else spoke to us. That's not good. Don't let it go a month before somebody gets spoken to. Um, They got better at welcome. Uh, over time but I'm really grateful to the first few couples um, that took us into their homes and I remember a lovely evening that we had at the home of a farming couple who were one of the first possibly I can't remember possibly the first people to have us over just when I was thinking I'm never going to settle down in this city it's strange nobody likes me uh, but we, you know, we never really got to know these people well, and we hardly saw them again because we had lots of different services at our church, and they went to different ones. They were involved in different stuff, and they had busy uh, responsibilities with their farm. Um, but they played that crucial role. They took a risk um, that, you know, who knows what we might have done at their house? But luckily for them, um, we were quite well behaved. But they were they were very hospitable. There's a risk, I think, that we can start to think that hospitality is only for people who have the biggest homes or the ones who are the best cooks. And the worst-case scenario is it can actually become competitive. And I think the Hebrews author here is not talking about come dine with me. That is not the way to go. It worries me that the children in our church really love come dine with me. This is not how you behave when somebody invites you to their home. You don't kind of score them out of ten or whatever it is. Um, But hospitality, we've talked about, haven't we, it's expressed in smiles, in speaking to people, showing an interest, linking them up. If there's somebody who arrives and you think, oh, they might like such and such a person, they've got something in common, try and link them up. It might include cooking meals, it might include offering a spare bed. Um, Use of the shower when the other person's hot water system breaks down in December, that happened to us, was not funny. Friends were very, very kind, welcomed us in. The loan of electrical items, we have some friends around the corner. We pretty much use them as a lending library for all kitchen and um, garden gadgets. Uh, And, you know, bicycles, I've had borrowed bicycles in the past that were a great blessing. But there's a lot of wordplay in the first two verses of this chapter that gets a bit lost in translation. And to the original hearers, the verses would have sounded something like, love of brother, let it continue. Love of stranger, do not forget. And I think I would call this the Yoda construction. I can't do the voice, but it seems a bit Yoda-ish to me. Love of brother, let it continue. Love of stranger, do not forget. So like the Jedi, we need to use the force of welcome and hospitality. Couldn't resist, sorry. Sorry. Um, Verse three, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. So hospitality deals with strangers in our midst, and the next instruction takes those who may be known or unknown to us, but who have been removed from our midst, incarcerated, placed out of sight, and all too often out of mind. And this might include people who've committed crimes, people who've been wrongly convicted, and of course prisoners of conscience. But whatever the reason that someone finds themselves in prison, they are not to become forgotten persons. God does not forget people. He knows the name of every individual, however isolated, however remote, however broken they may be, and our calling is to sympathy, is to imagine what life must be like for those who are deprived of their liberty, who can't just take the walk to the post office or whatever. And our calling is to prayer for them and to prayerful action where appropriate. And in Hebrews 10.34, we learn that these believers had previously demonstrated great compassion for those who were in prison, First century prisons were pretty damp, dark, filthy places. The prisoners were very poorly treated and often they were completely reliant on their friends and family and well-wishers to supply them even with necessities. And the Hebrews are called here not to forget this very needy and vulnerable group. And it is probable that the author particularly had in mind those who were being persecuted for their faith. I think this is something the church in the West has got better about. We're becoming more aware of the persecuted church. We weren't, When I think of, um, it, you know, in my first few churches, it wasn't something we talked about that much. And now I see a lot more information. So organizations like Open Doors, World Watch Monitor, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, just to name a few, they provide information. You can look at their websites, get hold of prayer diaries and uh, lots of guidance to inform your prayers for different countries and individuals as well and there are sometimes opportunities to sign petitions or write letters or do some other practical helpful thing but of course in our very sophisticated world um, there are actually endless forms of imprisonment and isolation aren't there there are those who aren't able to get out and about the way they used to those who just feel lonely or a bit disconnected, those who are struggling with debilitating physical or mental illness. And all these individuals need us to remember them, to care about them, to visit them and consider and meet their needs. We need to tell people's stories to others so that they're not forgotten and tell them the stories of the happenings that they haven't been able to share in personally. Verse 4, moving on. Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Marriage is something very precious and pure, and adultery spoils it and stains it often a lot more than the adulterer anticipates. It grievously wounds the betrayed spouse, it devastates children... And it hurts all those who care about that marriage. And there are two particular Greek terms that are used here. pornus, which is a general term for sexual immorality. And moikos, which specifically is talking about adultery. So sexual intimacy is designed to be enjoyed within that security of the marriage covenant. And when that bond of trust is violated, that covenant is jeopardized. However, I want to say that our God is a great redeemer. It is possible for a marriage to, rebuilt, to be rebuilt and trust restored even after an affair. Martin and I have uh, been involved with a ministry called Love After Marriage. And we've seen and heard uh, stories where there has been uh, a tremendous redemption of a broken marriage. It takes a lot of prayer, patience oceans of forgiveness, raw honesty, and grim determination sometimes. But adultery does not automatically mean the end of a marriage. Sin can be forgiven, wounds can be healed, shame can be removed. And this passage does say that God will judge the misuse of our sexuality. But we know too that he is a God who is able to forgive sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we come to him in repentance. But notice that this is not a command that is issued only to married people. It's not like the bits uh, in the New Testament that say husbands do this, wives do this. This is saying marriage should be honored by all people. That permanent commitment uh, between two people needs to be recognized and respected. And that applies whether or not we personally approve that match of individuals, the ceremony, or the conditions under which it took place. Now, recently, there was a friend of ours that got married for the second time. And we weren't invited. It was a very small gathering. Um, But it did feel like a really strange day when we saw the announcement because we're still very sad and hurt about the breakdown of the first marriage. And we're godparents to the original couple's daughter who's a teenager, and who has found this really, really tough. Um, And it's hard to know, how do we relate to this new person who's come into the situation? How do we relate to the stepmother of our goddaughter? But, you know, we added our congratulations on Facebook, and we have to accept now that marriage um, is a formal commitment. We have to accept that our friend's duty is with his new wife and uh, his new baby, as well as, obviously, to his other children. And these situations are never easy, but God calls us to honor the commitments of others. And I was speaking earlier about the general call to be connected in mutual love. And every person... Um, will have some particularly significant relationships in their lives. That might be with a spouse or a partner. It might be with parents or siblings or children. It might just be with a very dear friend. It might be with long-standing colleagues, with a mentor or somebody that you're mentoring. And we really need, as a church, to give people the time and space to nurture and develop those relationships, as well as contributing to the wider community and I think that our church culture can be really bad for overloading people with meetings and commitments this is something I feel quite strongly about and of course we want to worship and meet and serve together but we do have some personal boundaries as well And we need to make sure that every person has time to spend and not only spend, sometimes to lavish upon those who are their nearest and dearest. And this applies to single people, married people, dating people, whatever. We all need time to develop um, important relationships. Not to the exclusion of everybody else, but we do need time and space. And we must honor relationships because they're the building blocks of our community then we come to verse 5 keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said i will never leave you or forsake you and one detail of our lives that takes up a lot of room in the bible is money all you know all those coins notes bits of plastic that we had or wish we had in our pockets and wallets and banks and biscuit tins now money is in and of itself is neutral it's merely a tool We don't need to fear it. We will not be contaminated if we help to count the collection one Sunday. I sometimes come across this hesitancy. They don't want to touch the money. Um, But there is a problem uh, with a love of money. We can become attached to it. We can begin to make it the focus of our life. And the Anglican Tom Wright says that when we love someone or something, we make sacrifices for it. And if we sacrifice something else in our lives so that we can follow where money is beckoning, that can be a danger signal, he says. Now, our culture, as you know, is insanely materialistic, isn't it? We're bombarded with advertising designed to stir up that discontent and dissatisfaction in our hearts and motivate us to make that next purchase. And it comes with this shiny wrapper that promises instant gratification, but often leaves us feeling a bit underwhelmed, really. And I wonder, in all seriousness, when will we learn to live more simply and to be satisfied primarily in the Lord and not in consumables? I am preaching to myself there very much. Now, it's okay to spend money. It's okay to buy stuff and use it. Use it well. Lend it. Share it. But we do need to keep an ear open to the Lord's leading. And on occasion... Be sensitive to his hand of restraint saying, don't spend or spend less or spend differently. And just as sexual immorality destroys trust within a community, greed can disrupt our ability to love others and to meet their needs. When we have money, we can be tempted to indulge ourselves and forget others. And when we don't have money, we can be tempted to be anxious and preoccupied and to forget God. And this verse reminds us, God has promised to be with us always. We can look to him to provide for our needs and to show us how to use money. Now, we live in difficult times, and we don't know when we'll finally climb out of this recession. We can cry out to God on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of others who are struggling with poverty and debt and money worries And I pray that we will learn to talk and pray more openly about financial matters, that we'll acknowledge the struggles that we have with love of money and with with provision. And I pray that we'll become more generous and creative in our giving and also be quick to ask those sisters and brothers for help when we need it. It's a difficult and sensitive area, but it's one where we can express a lot of love and support to one another. And the final detail that I want to consider comes in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we're called to love and care for strangers and prisoners and the significant people in our lives. And we're called to resist the misdirection of our love towards money and possessions. And now we get this last group singled out are leaders in the faith. And they're key because they help us to work out all the other details of our Christian lives. Now, the Hebrews had had the message of salvation preached to them, explained to them, but it says in the book that they were in danger of drifting away, of neglecting that message. And a lot of Hebrews is about listening. Listen to the voice of God through the prophets and through his son, listen to sound teaching, listen to the testimony of the faithful, that cloud of witnesses that includes all those who've gone before, from Abraham down to those in our own family and church family who have bestowed that legacy of faith. Because we're not alone working out all this stuff. We're in the context of a global and historic faith. We're following the same Jesus the first disciples followed. So we should care for and pray for our leaders because they have great responsibility. We should listen to what God is saying through them, not uncritically. You're free to criticize. You're free to question. But we should listen expectantly. And we're called to pay attention to how they live and even imitate it. So our leaders are or should be those who model faithful obedience, holy living, gracious attitudes, and perseverance to the end. Now, this is a huge challenge for any leader to be, or rather, by God's grace, to become someone whose life and faith are worthy of imitation. So we're called to offer sacrifice of praise, called to a life of mutual love and connection, called to pay attention to those details of our lives, and finally uh, kept by an unchanging Lord. Verse eight, and we've mentioned it several times in the service already. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And one commentary I was reading called this the festive affirmation. It may have been something that was used in worship regularly. Jesus is unchanged and unchanging. He's the same savior today as when we first called on his name. He's the same servant leader who washed the feet of the disciples. The same supernatural provider who fed the 5,000. The same compassionate brother who reached out to touch and heal the suffering. The same wise counselor who told his followers not to worry about the future. The same inclusive welcomer who had time for little children. The same bringer of challenge as when he preached on the Sermon on the Mount the same bright and glorious Lord as the day when he first rose from the dead. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he offers the only secure foundation for our lives. And as we work this stuff out, he's interceding for us. He's praying for us in the throne room. So let's seek to honor him with our lips and with our lifestyles as
2: well. Amen. We come now to pray for others and for each other's. Let us all pray. Almighty God, we come together to praise you, to stand once more in your presence, to consider your handiwork, and to remind ourselves of all that you have done in our lives, all that you are doing, and all that you will continue to do. Help us truly to praise you, not just in words and appearance, but in our hearts, our thoughts and our lives. So may we offer you the truest expression of praise, a life of faithful discipleship, a love for you and for one another, and a living commitment to Christ. Gracious God, We thank you that you have called us into fellowship to be a part of your people, not in isolation, but as members of a family united in Christ. Help us to share with one another, not just our friends or those we get on with, but all in our own church family and in the wider fellowship of the church. Help us to care for one another, To remember the housebound, those who are sick and lonely, all those going through difficult times, and to do what we can to show concern and offer support. Teach us what it means to be your people. Broaden our vision. Enlarge our understanding. Unite us in care and prayer In thought, word, and deed. Sovereign God, we bring before you our broken world, remembering that you loved this world so much that you became a part of it through your Son, offering your love to bring it healing. This week, we have been bombarded with news of Syria and the use of chemical weapons causing suffering and death of many innocent people. Recently, Sheila told us of families in Malawi who struggle to get the basic necessities of food, clean water and shelter. These are only two of the many troubled areas in our world. We bring to you our sense of frustration and hopelessness in the face of so much need Our awareness that there is so little that we can do to help. So little that we can influence, let alone change. And yet you call us to respond in whatever ways we can. To pray, to give, to serve and to sacrifice in the cause of your kingdom. Help us to do that faithfully encouraging those who offer compassion and support to others, supporting all who work for peace and justice, and petitioning those with the power to shape the affairs of this world. We thank you that, though it may sometimes seem otherwise, we are not alone, nor dependent solely on our own resources, for you are constantly at work, Striving to change lives, to redeem situations, to shape the course of history. Inspire us with the knowledge that in every situation of human need, you are there. (laughs) Loving God, come again to our world through your Son, our Saviour. Mend our divisions, forgive our foolishness. And guide all our affairs. In the name of Christ we ask it. Amen.